Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Professor Heltzer, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Well, Matt, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You know, my first question slated is about Michigan football, but you know what? I'm a nice host, so I think maybe I'll just skip to as a Michigan. I mean, I at least I have this on my desk. So does that, that counts for something, right? That counts for something. Yes. So as a Michigan Wolverine diehard fan, how are you, how are you thinking about the upcoming Bears potential dynasty that we have our, on our hands with a Buckeye leading the way? What are your thoughts on the upcoming Bears? Uh, Bears seasons. Well, it's it's a real paradox because uh, for those that don't know, the Bears finally decided to get a a quality quarterback. But the problem is he went to Ohio State. And as a Michigan fan, I really can't root for anyone who's connected to Ohio State. So it's it's a real problem. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I think you should check in with me and do a follow up podcast after the Bears season starts. But Boy, I really hope the Bears get it going finally. And uh, if the Ohio State quarterback is part of that, I'm just going to have to suffer through it. We'll have to see. It's kind of a win-win situation because if he does great, you're a Bears fan. We'll root him on as a Notre Dame fan. If he's terrible, if he's a bust, I mean, it goes to show that's why you don't draft Buckeye quarterbacks right there. That's true. That's a good way. That's a good way to look at it. I think I'm going to borrow that. Okay, there you go. All right. I like like that optimism. So I guess backing up... um, We'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. You know, are you from the Chicago area? Obviously, you went to Michigan undergrad, but we'd kind of love to hear sort of your background and how it led you to origin into VC. Um, sure. So I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. in the Maryland suburbs. Uh, that was a lot of fun. A lot of international people in my high school, and it was a great experience, great place to grow up. I uh, bought a computer when I was 13 years old. And I taught myself how to program. And I did it mostly because I was addicted to video games. And one way to get more video games was to trade them illegally uh, by uh, the precursor of the internet called BBSs, Bulletin Board Systems. If anyone has watched the movie War Games, where they use modems to call up other computer systems, that's what we did back in the day before the internet. And so uh, that's why I learned to program, because I was just addicted to computer PC video games. Uh, I eventually got my undergrad in computer science at Michigan. I was, as many people know, I was a year behind Larry Page, who then started Google. So our uh, our stories in our professional history diverged from that point. Uh, but it was an amazing time to be graduating with that kind of degree I, uh, because the, the internet was really just getting started. Uh, Netscape had just gone public the year I graduated. So I went off and built and designed computer systems as an architect, as a developer for about four years. I did that commercially. And then I always knew I wanted to do finance. You know, I got advice when I was younger from a patent attorney. They said professionally, if you can mix two disciplines, you can be really valuable and and you can have a really interesting and fulfilling life. And so for me, that was always going to be finance. It's just I had a curiosity of markets. And uh, I took the GMAT on the day I graduated college because I knew I eventually wanted to do that. I was really lucky to get into Booth and uh, I, I was a career changer. I went from 
being an engineer and building computer systems to uh, venture capital seemed really appealing to me because I worked at a big company. I wanted to work at a small company. I was more or less a consultant. So I wanted to work and build my own stuff. I wanted to bet on myself. I, I liked when the odds were, I liked being an underdog. And when all those things, you know, and I still love technology. So when all those things mixed together, my interest in finance, my interest in technology and, and those other aspects, you know, venture capital looked really interesting. And so I was very lucky to get an internship when I was at Booth. And the rest is really history. You know, that was 20 years ago. And I've been investing in venture since. And it's been uh, at times a really fun ride, at times a really uh, difficult and trying ride. But it is a really, I'm really lucky to be working in this business and working along great, great entrepreneurs. And you made a comment there about, uh, I think the patent attorney told you how mixing disciplines was great for a career. And are you surprised by, I would imagine when you were first starting out, when you got your MBA, the two disciplines that were most often mixed, probably in VC, were tech and finance, um, sort of those two, you know, convergence of skills or interests. Are, have you been surprised in the last, you know, two decades how it feels like the pathway to venture has really diversified? So many different disciplines are, you know, finding their way, finding their way to venture capital from journalism to design to, to marketing. Has it surprised you how that evolution has sort of has sort of worked out over the past two decades? Well, you heard me say this in class a bit. You know, there is no one path into venture, and that's been true for 20 years. Uh, I do agree that in recent years, and I'd say maybe the last five to six years, the number of paths have widened, uh, if that's even possible. And that's more because funds have realized that to differentiate, they can't just be great investors. They have to bring a lot of services to the portfolio companies. And the way they've done that is what are deemed platform teams. And these tend to be people who are very good operators, who are able to work with the portfolio companies and bring them resources in ways that the investment team can't, maybe because they built the product, or maybe they're an HR specialist or marketing. You know, you can go on and on for all the disciplines. And as a result, you know, people who not who don't necessarily have the interest or skills or constitution, frankly, to be a venture investor making investment decisions can join venture funds in roles that are really highly focused on supporting companies. And, and that, I think, has really opened up the pathways into venture funds. Can you talk a little bit about the composition of Origin itself and how that sort of ideology has transpired at Origin and, and what you think really sets your fund apart from you know, other VCs in the Midwest and in North America at large? Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's start with, because so we we're talking about platforms, so let's talk a little bit about that first and get that out of the way. We were one of the first funds outside of the coast to invest in a platform team. Uh, you know, our, we we have lots of resources that we have uh, we have collected over our 22 years of doing this that we bring to the companies. And uh, Devin Leichman's our platform person, and that's what he does all day long. Whether you need, if you're a, a founder and you need a job description, you need an example of an employee handbook. If you need service providers for whatever it is, he's going to have those answers. Uh, and so that's been a very important part of our business. And we, we hold four in-person events per year for our portfolio companies uh, to get people together because we also know we don't have all the answers. And so our portfolio companies tend to, and, and getting building that interconnectivity has been very valuable. 
So, so I'll, I'll finish on the platform side. I mean, what sets us apart? There are a couple of things. One is we're a team of 10. All of us are former founders, operators, or engineers. So we've all built companies and products before. Being a founder is difficult. It's, it's sometimes very lonely and it's a lot of ups and downs. And we have a lot of empathy because we've been in the shoes of those teams. And we look at it as a partnership. And instead of saying, hey, look, we came from this background where we've never built something, but we're going to tell you how to build something, we don't subscribe to that. Uh, we, and so we, we're on the board of almost every investment that we make because we are involved and we can, and we can be very helpful. Um, the other thing that sets us apart as a fund is we are theme-driven. We invest in companies that, are, that have acknowledged and are uh, uh, behavior differences across generations and are building new products and services to meet those new needs. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of our investments is a company called 15.5. It's a software company that does continuous performance reviews in companies. And that was, we invested in that because as we you know, understand these younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, and, and younger, uh, we, we understand feedback is an important part of their life, whether it's feedback immediately when you get out of an Uber or whether it's feedback in their professional lives, that's just how they work. And it's, it's immediate. Again, it's right when you get out of the car. And so uh, a lot of younger generations look at their lives on their mobile phones and on the internet and see that software and say, why isn't this the same way in my company? And, and we said, look, that generation, an annual review doesn't make any sense. And that's why we invested in 15.5, because we saw that this was software that allowed um, management that might be older to deal with scaling up feedback that was much more frequent. Um, I'll give you another example. Backlot Cars is an, a, a company that we sold uh, for, for almost half a billion dollars to a public buyer. Uh, we, were, we led the Series A round. We, and our thesis there was the company does uh, auctions for used autos, wholesale auctions. And we said, look, it's, uh, it's been in-person auctions in these big parking lots out like two hours outside of the city around the country. It's been working that way for 50 plus years. Why now? And the answer came back to a generational change where you have younger people now who are running these dealerships or at least keeping track of inventory. And they asked the question, like I said before, why doesn't this work the way it works as a consumer? I buy everything online and it gets delivered to my house two days. I do not want to spend two hours there, two hours back, only on Wednesdays and Sundays. That just doesn't work with my life. And shouldn't we shouldn't accept that. And that was a huge part of the catalyst of the growth in backlog cars. And on and on and on. And throughout our investments where we look at these types of trends, you know, Cameo is another example where what it means to be famous is very different now in the world of social media that younger generations grew up with. Um, so that's another thing that sets us apart, uh, the fact that we're operators and, and that we're very, very theme-driven. And is that the core central theme behind Origin, or is it one of a few themes? I'm so fascinated by, by that theme itself and how I guess I'll start there. Is that sort of the main central thesis behind Origin? Yes, yes. Is it behind every single investment we do 100%? No. Right. And there's certainly things we've done opportunistically. But the vast majority of our investments, that is the theme. There, There is – and here's why it's interesting is because there's one law of biology, and that is that we are all getting older. And when people get older, they have more buying power as consumers. I hate to break this to you, Matt, but that's <laughs> – they, they get more buying power as consumers and they have more authority in making decisions in companies. 
And so if you, if, if we're successful in identifying a trend, uh, a generational trend early, when that generation is younger, and we tap into that uh, by making an investment in a company that's figured out a new solution, there's a lot of growth that fuels those companies inevitably by that generation getting older. And that's what has been, again, I, I gave you some examples, but that's what's been successful in our years of doing this. And so that's why it's a, a central theme. Now, do we look for disruption in other places? Sure, but it's the same type of approach. You know, Whether it's the disruption caused by COVID that now has accelerated digital adoption, it's the same type of mechanism that creates this momentum. Because look, it's hard to be good at venture capital. And if you are able to find companies that have these inevitable growth catalysts behind them, it makes the job easier. Not easy, but easier. And that's been a big part of what we've done. And it's so interesting, too, because it applies not just in the consumer world, but as you mentioned, millennials taking the reins. It's something that spurred, I think, a lot of the B2B marketplace startups in the last five years is millennials want the same purchasing experience they get at home when they go to Amazon and digital marketplaces. These millennials and enterprises, they have buying power, they have purchasing power, and they want that same seamless digital interaction, which yep. up until the last couple of years was analog, stuck in spreadsheets. So I think it's fascinating that it applies both in the consumer and in the enterprise world. Yeah, what, what I always tell people to really dramatize this is I ask them, okay, of all the apps you've downloaded on your phone, how many of them did you go to a training session for? How many did you read a manual to use? And you know, of course, it's a rhetorical question, but that's the expectation that people have of these generations as they go into the workforce. I don't want to go to a week to learn how to use my CRM system. I want a system where it's just obvious what I need to do. And I think that that expectation has has fueled the B2B transition to, to, to consumerized marketplace or consumerized interfaces. I mean, I think that largely has has run its course. Uh, but but it's things like backlog cars in fifteen five where we've gone beyond just the interfaces now and what's the core uh, the core part of what these these businesses are tapping into in terms of generational changes. And another question I have, I guess, around this revolves around the monitoring aspect. So you know, Listen Ventures, I've had both Rick Desai and Jeff Cantalupo on the show, and they are very much. Uh, they like to be very cognizant of trends going on out in the market, different themes. And one of the ways they monitor that is by hiring these sort of MBA and right out of college interns who are very in the know of these trends, who are themselves Gen Z, are themselves millennials. How do you guys at Origin like to keep a pulse of what are some of the major trends going on within these generational differences? Is it these conferences that you have four times a year? Is it just talking to your portfolio companies as much as possible? How, how do you guys try and stay abreast of, of all the major sort of themes that are popping up? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we, we have seven full-timers on our investment team. Four of them are millennials or younger. Um, so, uh, so we've got millennials and Gen Z that make a majority of our investment team making the decisions. So that's the first thing. <clears throat> Second thing is, this is a very, these are very well-researched generations. So there's, there's lots of other people doing the hard work uh, in, in getting into all the real data. So, so we are consumers of that, as you'd imagine. Uh, we also have, I think I counted once, I've lost count. I think we have, I don't know, 15, 16 children amongst the 10 of us, uh, all who are, most of them are Gen Z. Some, uh, you know, some you could debate whether they're millennials or not. 
Uh, and so we we do we I have an investment thesis, a sub thesis I'm working on that was inspired by something one of my kids was doing. Uh, so it it comes from anywhere, and and that's the reality. Uh, we are. I'd also say that some of us are very, very early adopters to technology. So the, while while we might have uh, gray hair or a lot of experience, uh, we we are still dabbling in in whatever is new as well. But but we also understand quite deeply that we are not the target customer of many of our companies, and that we have to understand that bias because there are lots of companies I've seen funded where it's clear like. The, the entire market for the product is likely all venture capitalists in the U.S., and that's about it. Uh, so, with, so with that understanding, too, it allows us to tap in. And probably the best resource that we have is we've assembled a Gen Z panel. You know, we have gone out and built a very diverse set of voices uh, that are in that age group that are upcoming professionals or you know, very interesting um, consumers who we meet on, we meet with a regular basis on a regular basis once a month. And we, we have different things we're bouncing off of them. We also ask them, what, what are you excited about? That has provided incredible insights into deals that we should go after, diligence on some companies. And uh, there's just been some really surprising, interesting things there. So uh, I guess the, the end of it is we research this stuff. We try to understand from lots of different angles, from people who are the target market, and that insight has been really, really helpful. I, you you made a comment there, which I was going to bring up at some point during the episode. But um, from taking your class at Booth, you did tell the story of you know the seed round into Pinterest and the VC who was being pitched Pinterest really didn't understand the product. And it took another voice on his team to sort of enlighten him to the opportunity. And your sort of mental model that I think you really champion is this idea of whatever the product is, it's probably not built for me. It's not made for me. So I need to talk to all the people that this product is made for. And I guess that leads me to so many you know, underlying questions. But in your due diligence efforts um, over the course of your career, what have you found to be some of the gr- biggest green flags at the very early stages of diligence when you hear a pitch, when you meet a founder? What are some of the biggest things that really get the, uh, get the spider senses tingling? Well, yeah, I, uh, and I think... Look, there can be lots of things that ignite your interest about a deal. And in the end, you know, this is a, a people business. And so much of it starts with the founders and the relationship you build with the founders, the passion they have for solving the problem. You know, I like to find uh, I like to find founders who have earned the problem. You know, there are some subject matter expert. You know, when we back backlot cars, uh, there's a founding team of four. One ran a dealership. One ran an auction. One ran finance to, to fund uh, dealerships to buy cars. And on and on, like you just look and say, I mean, this is the expertise you need. Uh, and when they've suffered through these problems, it just gives them not only great insight, but a real mission. They're on a real mission. Um, I like backing contrarians. You know, it can be very uh, challenging at times to do that. But if you really think about the true innovation that's occurred in, in the last 50 years, the last 100 years, it is by people who had a very different view of the world, a, a, a different, they believe something to be true that most other people did not. And that really, that is what spurred the innovation. And, and it's hard as an investor because there are lots of people who believe something to be true that no one else believes because they're wrong uh, and, and, and there isn't an opportunity. And so you, you have to, 
you have to discern what is opportunity versus just someone who's playing wrong. But to me, that also can get me excited when someone is willing and again, so committed to the mission, probably because they've earned that problem that that they know this is the path, despite the fact that everyone's going the other way. Talk is a great example of that, where Nick Akonis believed very strongly that the way to build a great, successful restaurant was to, to charge in advance. And many, many people were naysayers about that. And eventually it was a very successful outcome for, for the company, for its employees, and for, uh, for Origin and our co-investors. Um, but that was a belief in, in, and Nick is a contrarian, but is a belief in a contrarian view that we agreed was, was the right, you know, was eventually something that was going to be successful. So that's one thing. And I'd say the other category is growth. And, and that growth often becomes because, is, is because there's some product market fit. And there's something magical when you see a product being created that the market is consuming quickly. And when you see that growth, and, uh, and, and the product is being bought more than it's being sold, you know, that also can get you really, really, really excited. So those are the two, th- I mean, look, there are lots of things that get you excited, but those are the two that if you fit, you know, early on, you get that feeling, um, it really inspires you to lean in and find a way to work with them. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned talk and that is one of the great recent success stories, I think, out of the Chicago ecosystem. And you were a board director there. So I'm just so curious. It almost seems to have had such a crazy meteoric rise, especially after COVID hit and they pivoted. Um, Just curious about some of the learning and insights you took from, frankly, being a part, a board director of such a rocket ship in the Chicago ecosystem. What was that experience like? Well, you know, what's what's always amazing to me is that from the outside, you know, these kind of successes look like they happen quickly overnight and that it was a it was a straight line up and to the right. But it, when you zoom into them, you know, you you start to see there there's quite a bunch of zigging and zagging and and the the path of entrepreneurship is uh, is one that has a lot of ups and downs. And talk is no exception. In fact, during COVID, it was a crazy roller coaster. You know, Nick, Talk is a global business. It's got customers in 40 plus countries. And Nick saw that res- reservations in Hong Kong were basically getting canceled. All, and basically, all of them were getting canceled. He saw customers not put on new reservations. And this was about a month before we started seeing cases in Seattle for COVID here in the United States. And I give great credit to Nick and to Fitz and to Jeff and to Steve and the rest of that team that looked at that and said, hey, we've, we've got a problem. Because all the, all the times that you know, when we initially looked at the deal in 2016, one of the things I pressed Nick on was, listen, restaurants are terrible customers. They go out of business. They're not great payers. How do you think about this risk? And he had the right answers like this is a portfolio. You know, we have a wide enough portfolio diversifies out that risk. And he's a former trader. And so, you know, we talked about efficient frontiers and, and understanding how how that can really build a great business. And uh, and that was true. But it was predicated on one assumption, which I give him credit for articulating back in 2016. And that is as long as the restaurants don't have a correlated event and as long as they don't all go out of business. And when everything happened in Hong Kong, that was the moment where he said, wait a second, these things could all go out of business. And again, going back to what I was saying before, I give great credit to the team because 
if you think about startups, it, it's just like evolution. And it is not necessarily the strongest ones that survive, but it's those that are adaptive. And that's what Talk did. It adapted. And, and back to my comment about people who've earned the problem, well, Nick is a restaurant operator. And so he was dealing with these problems as a restaurant owner. At the same time, he's trying to figure out what to do with Talk. And the conclusion that was in the, uh, let's call it a moment of invention was, hey, we need to help these restaurants survive. What do they need now? Well, they're not getting prepaid reservations, that's for sure. They need pickup and delivery. These restaurants that are these fancy restaurants, including his own at Linea, never had done that. And now it was a matter of survival. And so within a week, they built that product. And it was a crazy turnaround because revenue went from many millions a month to zero in the course of a couple of weeks. We made a choice not to charge our restaurants because we knew that would that would be a mistake. And about a month and a half later, the company started generating cash, which, you know, at this stage of investment is an endangered species. And so it's just an incredible turnaround story that eventually led to Squarespace buying it for $445 million back in the spring of 2021. And so uh, it is it was not a meteoric rise that just you know continued through the atmosphere without any panic or uh, the stages of the rocket not firing. I mean, it was the thing was coming back down to earth and someone and the team, I, again, I'll give them credit, were able to get the thing going again. Um, so, and, and that's by, by the way, that's true for a lot of successes. And if you, you see lots of successes out there and, and marketing is great, how great these things, these companies are. But the, but the truth is having been in the sausage making of this business for a long time, there are a lot of warts. There are a lot of issues in these companies because uh, they are, they are companies that are changing quickly. They are scaling, they're young companies. And so that is the nature of the business. And it's why I tell students like you and your, and your classmates, don't go in this business unless you have the constitution for that. Because when you've got a portfolio, there's always a crisis. Uh, when you're an entrepreneur, and entrepreneurs take the most risks, don't get me wrong. They suffer the, the, high, the, the lows the most. They enjoy the highs the most. But there are days where they're just good days. Whereas in our world, there's always a crisis and you just have to be prepared for that. Yeah, I think your quote from class, I might be, uh, I might be getting it wrong, but I think you said, don't get into venture if you want a peaceful life. I think is yeah, what you always Yeah, that's not my quote. That, that's George Dorio. Uh, I, we did, I did repeat that quote in class, but that's George Dorio. He's like the first modern venture capitalist who really created the venture capital industry after World War II in the U.S., trying to get veterans back to work. And uh, he has a, a number of amazing quotes, but that's right. Like, don't do not go into venture if you want a peaceful life. And that's true. Um, and look, I, I'm not complaining about it. I think it's an incredible job. I feel very, very lucky and privileged to be to have been doing this for 20 years and work alongside some amazing people as, as founders who, again, are doing the real work. Uh, but there are moments that that are, you know, you get these phone calls that are that, you know, there are catastrophes that happen in these businesses for lots of reasons. And and you, you, coming in and helping solve them, some you can solve, some you can't solve, you know, is is a big part of what we do. You know, you've had clearly not origin has had successes and you've had shorter feedback loops in the case of talk for example but i'd imagine especially early on in your career starting out you knew you were getting into a business with longer feedback loops where it would take a while to know hey am i actually competent am i above average am i good at this job 
How did you now, looking back on the past 20 years, how did you weather those periods of uncertainty and of long feedback loops? How did you sort of get yourself through those times? Well, I'm still not sure if I'm good at this. I mean, 20 years later. So, so you know, it's I'm not sure I've solved this problem. But you're right. It is an issue. And, and I'll tell you, it was really difficult for me at the beginning of my career because I was an engineer. I would write code. I'd run it. It either worked or it didn't work. And I, I got that feedback immediately. And if I didn't get that feedback immediately, some tester came over and told me that with, you know, uh, a swagger in their step. Of course, you know, I sometimes I disappoint them by telling them it was user error and it's um, working as design. But anyway, um, it uh, there are a couple ways to do it. I mean, number one is, and certainly younger in my career, I wrote down my opinion about every single deal that I encountered, whether whether we did it or not. And that helped me go back and say, mm, I had the right instincts there. And that helped shape my, my decision-making. Uh, we, you know, we have our younger uh, colleagues who are not on the investment committee. They don't have an official vote. They have a lot of influence in our decision, but they don't have an official vote. Uh, one of them, I give, I give her a ton of credit. She said, hey, listen, is it okay if I vote every time and my vote is made public to everybody? Uh, we know, I know it's not binding, but can I do that? And we said, that's a great idea. And so now all of our younger colleagues who are not on the investment committee do that. And that gives them some feedback too. And we keep track of deals that we say no to. You know, we have a long anti-portfolio list. We were talking about that this morning, actually. And, and that's the part, you know, we, we have the humility to know we're going to miss some. And so that's part of the feedback loop. Uh, I'd say the other thing that's a really important distinction to make is <clears throat> it's very easy to say, okay, um, we decided not to make this investment. And then you see the company successful and many people will conclude, well, we made a mistake. We made the wrong decision, but that's not necessarily true. You know, you have a certain amount of information at the time you make a decision and, and we're in the business of taking risks under great uncertainty. And so it's like, okay, someone gives you a 20 sided die and they say, listen, if you, if you roll a 20, I'm going to give you a million dollars. If you roll anything else, I'm going to give you a dollar. Or you've got to pay me a dollar, sorry. And you roll the die and you, you know, you get a 17 inevitably and you got to pay a dollar. And the, people will, it's like saying, oh, well, you made the wrong decision. You shouldn't have rolled that die. Well, that's stupid. Of course you should have rolled that die. Sometimes the, the outcome is different than the decision. And there are times that we've said, listen, we made the wrong decision. And in those moments we say, how do we change our, our decision framework to not make that mistake again? And then there are times we said we rolled the dice and this time the wrong number came up. But we made the right decision. Uh, and, and that to me is a really important dis, uh, differentiation that helps when you're, when you're thinking about feedback loops to try to make them tighter. Make sure you're distinguishing because otherwise you can make adjustments unnecessarily. Yeah, and I, I love the comment too about your junior VCs you know, wanting to catalog their thoughts effectively. And I know we mentioned in class as well, Origin's commitment to the memo process and to reviewing those once a quarter when you guys do your offsites and really figuring mm -hmm. out where has our thinking, where were we right, where were we wrong, how can we do better in the future? And I think bringing it back to sort of the, the junior VC angle, you've been a professor with Booth for almost 10 years. You've been heavily involved in that sort of uh, that ecosystem. I, I'd love to hear from your perspective how the market for junior venture capitalists has changed for either pre-MBA or post-MBA 
just given the fact you've been near close to that sort of career path and and junior people who want to get into it, how in your mind has it changed over the past 10 years? Well, one of the biggest changes is that my students don't know any of the 1980s movie references that I that I give I mean, in class. I would say I did a pretty good job. I've you were okay. About- you were okay. But you know, when, when I talk about war games and most of the students haven't ever heard of it, it is uh, deeply disappointing. But in any event, uh, more seriously, I'll tell you the biggest difference is when I was a student back in ancient history, there was only one way to learn about venture capital, and that was in business school or that was by doing it. And fast forward to today, there are lots of ways to learn about venture capital. In fact, we're recording a podcast as a great example of where someone who has no exposure can learn a lot by listening and and, and smashing that subscribe button. I'm helping you out here, Matt, uh, so that they keep getting a constant feed of really good information for free. You know, there are books now written about how to structure venture capital deals. There are, I mean, there are movies uh, like, what is it? Wedding Crashers. One of them uh, pretended to be a VC. Like it's, that's not holy shirts and pants. (laughs) Yeah. That's not a great way to learn venture capital, by the way, but, but nonetheless, Students are arriving in my class and at Booth and at business schools around the country with a base of knowledge. And even if they don't come with a base of knowledge, if if their curiosity gets sparked, they have all these resources where they could learn a lot. And so when they like one thing that's changed about the student body is just their level of understanding of venture. And so as I had I adjust the curriculum every year, like 30 to 40 percent of the curriculum changes and Every year, it's getting more advanced because I don't have to explain as much of the basics. Uh, and that, that's exciting to me because we can get into much more interesting topics. We can, we can do these, the simulations that we do. We can make more complex and certainly more interesting for me and the students. So that's one thing. I'd say the other thing that is just absolutely exciting to see is the, the percentage of women in my class has skyrocketed the last four or five years and is now getting, now getting close to being 50-50. Uh, I, I would love to see a more racially diverse uh, uh, candidates in the class. We're making some progress there, not enough. But that, but those are some of the big, big changes. And, you know, the interest in venture capital continues to be very deep. And that's been that's been sustained. Uh, but also yeah, the program itself has grown. I mean, we're going to we're we have two we're going to have two sections next year, almost 100. And my guess is the venture capital, the two sections will be over 100 students. Uh, which and then private equity will be about the same, I think. So, you know, really amazing percentage. It's about a quarter of the the full time body that will go through that pro that that class. And it's it's no secret, you know, why twenty five percent of people go through this class eventually wind up in the industry. Not because of my teaching, but because the the students just keep getting better and better. And I'm curious about this show has a lot of young professionals, and many of which are listeners who have not gone to business school yet. They're in their sort of low to mid twenties and they're trying to assess, could I make it into VC? What should I do next with my career? Should I go to business school? Should I join a startup? I guess from your perspective, what do you think is the best piece of advice or what, what's your biggest piece of advice you would give that sort of low to mid 20 or late twenties uh, career professional who's considering they want to get into VC. They don't know the next step to take though. Yeah, it's a good question. I have a I have a medium, I have a whole bunch of medium posts about this topic, and I'm not going to try to summarize all of them here. Um, I, I wrote them many years ago, and I, I don't really think the advice is different. 
venture, there are lots of routes into venture capital as we talked about before. And so, and some of those routes do not involve business school. Most people do go to business school. And if you are a career changer, like, like I was like an engineer and you need to learn finance, there's no better way than to go get an MBA. It's just absolutely no better way. And schools like Booth and others are really good about providing an on-ramp into the industry. You know, we have hundreds of private equity and venture capital firms that want our students and participate uh, in internship programs that are, I don't want to say easy for our students to get, but, but we make it as easy as it can be. Um, so, so those are really good paths for career changers and people who, want, um, who are really dedicated to the industry and, and see that path. But it is not the only way. I mean, there are certain people and, and some of the best investors I know, uh, the person you mentioned for, about uh, Pinterest, Jeremy Levine, he did not go to business school. Um, Brian O'Malley, who, who was at Excel and now at Forerunner, who I work with at Trade King, yeah, he did not go to business school. And there are plenty of examples of people who didn't. And it just depends on your level of skills. And what I recommend to people is, you know, venture capitalists tend to be good at a bunch of things, uh, maybe depth at one thing. So, and those skills are things like, can you negotiate? Do you understand product? Can you, do you understand finance and accounting? Can you sell? Like there's a long list of things. Uh, and you should assess, you know, yourself on those different dimensions and those skills. And how, you know, you're going to be short, right? Like when you're younger in your career, you're not going to have all the things that make a great venture capitalist great. And I don't have all those things either. I'm still trying to acquire those skills. But you try to figure out, okay, how do I, what's my path to getting that well-roundedness that makes for an attractive venture investor? And you figure out how to fill the gaps. And for many people, filling those gaps is an MBA program. It's an efficient way to do it. It's a fun way to do it too. I learned lots of stuff outside of venture capital that was, you know, really just makes me a better person and human. Uh, but it's not right for everyone. Some people can acquire those skills other ways by working in companies, by getting a job in venture directly, by working in you know, other industries. There are other paths as well. And, and, and because so much of the material and the content is available for free, it is much more of a possibility than it was 10 years ago. Absolutely. I think that's such great advice. And I would highly recommend anyone considering to go to Booth to take Professor Heltzer and Weiss's class. Easily the best one, worth the entire price of admission for sure. Oh boy, the flattery. Jeez, this is going to get you nowhere. <laughs> this no, is how I get you back on another episode. That's how we're just <laughs> you know, reeling you in. Okay. All right. All right. Guilty as charged. But um, look, I'll, I'll say this, and I'm, I'm absolutely biased. I mean, because I teach there and I'm a grad, but Chicago Booth was a transformational experience for me professionally and personally. You know, Professor Thaler, who wound, wind up winning a Nobel Prize, who teaches the, uh, or at least one point taught the managerial decision-making class, fundamentally changed the way I think about decisions. And, you know, I felt I was a pretty good decision-maker coming into business school. It just tells you how much uh, of a transformation it was. And for me, there were so many opportunities to learn outside of the classroom, Booth just really teed up so many opportunities, whether it's the new venture challenge business plan competition, the venture capital investment competition, which is the opposite of a business plan competition, or the internships uh, or the subsidies for internships. I mean, the list is super long. And, and since then, you know, the Polsky Center, which, which runs entrepreneurship in the, whole, the entire university, but especially at Chicago Booth, is so good at what they do. And, and those programs have only exploded in number 
and in scope. And so anyone who's an entrepreneur, anyone who wants to be a venture investor, uh, coming to Booth is a great decision that you can make. And so uh, that's the end of the commercial. But I really do believe it deep in my core. I mean, I also met, met my wife there, who also is uh, visits uh, as a professor at Booth from time to time. Um, so I'm that's probably the most important dividend out of my business school experience of <laughs> is meeting her. But yeah, it is. Um, it, I really do believe that it was a great experience for me and just a wonderful school. And you mentioned transformational experience. I think another ecosystem that's gone under, you know, a huge transformation, at least in my estimation in the last 10 years is the Chicago startup and tech ecosystem. Um, as somebody who's been around for 20 years in this ecosystem, in the tech scene, what are some of the biggest developments you've seen? How do you think the ecosystem is positioned for growth in the next decade? Yeah, I'll say, boy, there've been lots of changes. I mean, I think when... When I started investing in 2001 in Chicago, Chicago had let's let's call it an inferiority complex, and uh, there were there were some successes, not many. Um, it was it was it was a trickier time, but there were some good successful companies that came out of that that cohort in that era, uh, but but not a large not a not a large number of them, and not not humongous humongous successes. Uh, but then you look at maybe the past. Um, five to seven years where, you know, that's really changed. And, and part of it is, is a, is a systematic change. You know, we, we have cloud computing, so people can rent and lease infrastructure. So you could be a, a software engineer and you could build a company and you could spend incremental money on marketing and you could launch something very inexpensively. Uh, and that didn't exist when I started, you know, you'd have to raise 5 million to buy servers before you wrote a line of code. And so that really paved the way for the angel market because now smaller dollars could have much bigger impact, number one. Number two, a company in that seed early stage, when they originally initially come to investors, they've got something. They've got a product. They've got customers. And all of a sudden now, for someone who's not a professional investor uh, but, but wants to have exposure and has some level of sophistication, can now make those investments with greater confidence. And so you saw a wave of that, as I said, seven years ago, maybe, uh, that really started to accelerate things. Because then for someone who's a professional investor like me that might invest at, you know, not in that pre-seed stage as much, but seed and certainly series A stage when a company has a million to five million revenue. Now, all of a sudden, we have a lot more companies from which to choose. They have proven more. It becomes easier. And I think Chicago benefited from that. And then it benefited from some very high profile successes. You know, we we obviously know Grubhub well. Uh, Origin Ventures was the first investor in Grubhub and led uh, rode that to the IPO. And uh, until recently, Grubhub was an independent company that was public in Chicago that was founded here as well. And that is a beacon of light and inspiration for many engineers. Uh, and, you know, it's no longer independent, which is a bit of a, bit of a bummer, but that's what you need. You do need that uh, those very successful companies create a bunch of wealthy angels who then recycle that back. And I'll tell you the other thing that's really helped is 1871, which is our co our, uh, our, I don't want to call it incubator, but it's a co-working space. It was one of the first built um, in, in the country, certainly one of the biggest scale uh, that had a lot of support systems around it. 
And, you know, I was an engineer and I worked for a consulting firm and I was in business casual in the loop downtown in tall, nice office buildings. And I had a, a very comfortable lifestyle and, and job. You know, I, if I had walked into 1871, if someone said, hey, do you want to join a startup? I, I might have said, again, before business school, boy, that sounds risky. Like, I'm not sure about that. And then, but then 1871 exists. And if you take a bunch of engineers like I was, and you walk them through and say, okay, you could work for this company. And if this company fails, the other 199 that are in the same floor, two floors, are all going to want to hire you. All of a sudden, it doesn't look so risky. And then you say, wait a second, everyone's in River North in shorts and a t-shirt and like wearing their headphones. Like, that's pretty cool. And wait, there's no client. Like they're building for themselves. And wait, they own part of the company. And all of a sudden you get talent much more interested in taking that risk. And that's the piece that I think, I, it's never been that we don't have the engineering schools or the engineering talent here. It's that they needed those high profile successes and things like 1871 to really dramatize it's not as risky as you think. And I think that that's really changed. Now, we still have work to do. We, we have to build a more diverse group of found and fund a more diverse group of founders. That's one. Um, two, we need more of those high, high profile successes. You know, Origin Ventures, we invest across the country and in Canada. So we're not just in Chicago. We are founded here. Our largest office is here. But we have a large presence in Salt Lake City and we, we invest all over the place. Uh, in 19 different markets, we've invested. And one thing that Salt Lake City has is a lot of technology companies that have gone public and, and multi-billion dollar outcomes. And the companies in Chicago have, you know, tend to sell to other buyers uh, rather than going public. Some have gone public, more are going public. That is awesome. And because those become, again, those are the, the companies that are great inspiration for that next founder, for that engineer, that great marketing person to leave the very comfortable jobs they have and all the great big companies here in Chicago to go join a startup. There's so much there. There's so much to unpack. I think one no, you know, one topic that I've I've come across and a thought that I've had is we've mentioned Grubhub, we've mentioned Talk, we've mentioned Tovala. You guys are lucky enough to have been involved in, if not the first investor in all of those. Would you say it's fair to say the Chicagoland area, Chicago is sort of a food tech hub, a nexus for food tech innovation? And are there other industries that you all think or we think that Chicago has the ability to take sort of a, a market leadership position in? Yeah, yeah. Certainly, there have been a lot of great food tech companies, and you, you named a handful of them there. And there are plenty others that we haven't invested that were born here. You know, we, uh, the, you know, there's an incubator called Relish Works uh, that is focused on food tech, and and there are a bunch of investors, smaller smaller funds like uh, Barrel VC is one example that loves food tech stuff. Um, you <clears throat> and and there are a handful of others too, a Bluestein. Um, that also does that. So th there's definitely a concentration here. And I think we can continue to build and invent really, you know, Farmer's Fridge is a great company, really great uh, food companies here. And, and part of it is because we've got some of the best CPG companies that are headquartered here. McDonald's is headquartered here. Like we we are uh, have, have historically been a transportation hub um, that has been important for logistics and food. And of course, uh, we're in the Midwest where we grow a lot of food. So it, it, is, it has been, and I think will continue to be a great place for that. 
Chicago is a very integrated economy. And you know, one thing that's different than Los Angeles and New York, for example, that tend to be more dependent on a particular industry, Chicago is very well diversified. And in some ways, that's great. In some ways, it's not as good. You know, as you try to build a, a character or a marketing uh, slogan, let's say, for, for what we are as a tech community. But I'm grateful for that because they're experts in pretty much everything you'd need here in the city. Uh, transportation would be the other one besides food, I would mention. You know, Chicago, historically, whether by, by its history as a, a fur trading hub very you know, in the days of Fort Dearborn, or because of the realities of its location in the middle of what eventually becomes the United States as a rail hub, you know, it has always been good at logistics. And, and so, uh, but, but also the, the, in the financial markets, if you look at the derivatives markets, you know, New York City didn't think derivatives was going to be big and thought they were you know, not useful, but, uh, but those markets were all born here. And so there continues to be an enormous amount of talent that understands uh, financial markets, quantitative trading that uh, you only can find rivaled in New York. And so again, uh, I've just named three that are, but I could keep going. There's just it's a very well integrated economy, and I, I think that could you know can be a very big strength of ours. Professor, this has been incredible. Before we even consider signing off, though, I have to touch on a topic that I've been waiting to touch on with some guests at some point since I started this podcast. But you made a decision 15, 16 years ago to watch every best picture film ever made. And this was a time when I think the advent of your ability to do this was the video iPod had just came out. So it became yeah. easier for you to do this on your commute. I, I have to ask, what was the inspiration behind that choice? You know, any sort of major highlights from your journey through the, the last hundred years of filmmaking What have been some of your favorites. Would love to hear about that journey. Yeah, you know, the inspiration is kind of funny. You know, it's it's just part of my competitive spirit that my wife in the early 1990s is the beginning of the internet. Uh, she was a tax accountant and she decided to create an LLC that she called eMovieCritic.com. And she did it because she, she watched so many movies that she knew that if she did this and wrote about them and built a website and a company behind it, that she could deduct the cost of her movie tickets. And, and so she did that. And as a result, you know, she, she became very good and her and very deep in her movie knowledge. And as, you know, as we, you know, we got married and then over the years, she would just give me a really hard time for not knowing this movie or that movie. And I basically just got fed up and I got sick of it. And so I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to show her like any good, you know, marital dispute, you know, you've got to one up the other person. And so I, I said, I'm going to, I said, okay, what, what list should I, should I go through? And I didn't give it much thought. Like some people said, you should have uh, done the American Film Institute top 100. It's better. It's less political, but I just said, all right, I'll just see all the best picture movies. And so uh, as you, you, you were correct, it was around the same time the video iPod came out. And so I used this software that is, you know, generally kind of borderline legal to I would get some I get a DVD from Netflix. I would use the software to convert it to an MP4, and I would watch that on the video iPod on my commutes to and from work, which is about 30 minutes each way, 20, 30 minutes. So it was sometimes an annoying way to watch a movie, but and I didn't watch the movies I already seen. So so there was at the time I started it was like 87 movies in total had won the award. I might have seen 30 of them. 
So I, I just systematically went through it. It took me five years to do it, but I eventually got through all of them. And boy, it was just awesome. I mean, I recommend anyone who, you know, I found the time a special way, but if you do it while you're exercising or traveling or whatever it may be, um, it was really awesome. Like, I'm really happy I did it. I learned a ton. There were definitely some movies that completely sucked and like it was hard to get through. But, you know, I, I, I recently wrote two blog posts about this because I really wanted to share some of the things I learned because it really, if anything, the, the, there are two end results of it. Number one, my wife does not challenge me on movies anymore. So like mission accomplished. Okay. Um, like to, I, I, I acknowledge it's totally out of spite, but, and I'm definitely playing this up a little bit, but that definitely did happen. But secondly, and much more, more importantly, much more importantly, is my appreciation for film, especially older film, got way deeper, way deeper. And if I could, we could talk about movies for a whole nother podcast, but I'm just going to give your audience one thing to think about. And that is you can watch an old movie and not not feel moved, not think it's any great piece of cinema. But as you're watching the movie or even before the movie, just consider the historical context for that movie. Because I'll give you one example. There's a, there's a, a movie in the 1940s called The Lost Weekend. It's about an alcoholic. And you watch the movie today and you'd say, you know, it's an unremarkable movie. Guys, an alcoholic, his life's kind of falling apart. Boy, that's that's not that much. You know, it's not a, it's not a terrible situation. And, you know, but what's what's so compelling about this? And then you think about in the 1940s, alcohol was not treated as a disease. And there's no way you watch this movie and think anything else. Like, this is a disease. And then it's at a time where Alcoholics Anonymous was very, very small. It was just getting started. And so when you start to think about that historical context and then you think about what's the audience, how's the audience reacting? Well, those people in the audience who are alcoholics or on the border or have family members, like what did they do as a result of this movie? You start thinking about like, okay, what did this, what mark did this movie make on not just cinema, but on society as a whole? And, and that to me allowed me to appreciate a, a lot, a lot broader variety of movies. And so you really kind of go back and see some of these movies that with that context, and you really understand better why they're a masterpiece. Again, there's still ones that you just, you know, a lot of the movies in the thirties were adaptations that were very awkward of like big broad Broadway shows with, you know, the big feathers and the dancing and stuff. And, you know, it just, just doesn't, didn't translate. Right. But for the most part, like that's the one insight. And the one thing I learned that I hope other people will, will keep in mind as they think about watching some of the great films. I love that. And that's, that's so spot on too. I mean, it, I know this wasn't a best picture winner, but it reminds me of Philadelphia with Tom Hanks back in the early nineties surrounding the AIDS crisis. You know, right. when you contextualize these movies in the decade and the era they came out in um, it really brings forth kind of the true, you know, underlying purpose and and sort of the the art form transcending just art. It really has an impact on society and how it might view an affliction, a disease, um, or some marginalized part of society. Um, Professor, I have to ask as we close, favorite, if you have one, because there's not too many of them, but favorite movie based in or filmed in Chicago? Oh, it has to be Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, it is it is such a great film. It is so creative where he 
what is it called? He break, breaks the third, what is it called? The third fourth wall, wall. fourth wall. And uh, it's just such a clever film. And you know, we, we had this, this uh, tradition in my family on Friday nights where we've got three boys who are, you know, they're now all teenagers, almost all teenagers. And we watched all these great movies from the 1980s and 1990s they haven't seen. And there's a lot of whining and complaining because there aren't robots shooting things and stuff, but it is, um, it's been great. And that was one that we watched that it was fun for them having grown up in Chicago and seeing things and seeing how it used to look. And certainly it's a coming of age movie. So there there's something they can relate to, but it is just such a classic, classic movie. And just a fun thing. One of my friends, uh, that I know in Chicago, her father is one of the triplets that's in the end scene when they're doing the parade and there's a three guys partying, you know, they just answered a call for extras and they were three triplets and they're like, they have that prominent moment in the movie. And I was like, that is one of the coolest things I've ever heard. I'm so happy you said that. That is also my, it's growing up. It was my favorite. Every time I played hooky from school, I would turn on Ferris Bueller's day off. Um, so, so happy you mentioned that movie. Did you make, did you make the contraption where it looks like you're breathing in the bed or where <laughs> he sits up or yeah. When it opens the door, it makes it sound like, yeah, no, my, I was the youngest of four people. So it was a lot easier for me to just get a day off. I'd be I like, see, mom, yeah, you just, you just had to tell your mom what you were doing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 Basically, maybe your like older sibling's not so much, but yeah. if there's one thing, you know, maybe you you should tell your audience that, that probably skews younger, go watch that movie if you haven't. It is such yeah. an amazing, uh, fun, fun movie. But uh, there's some there's some deep, important themes in it, too, for sure. Now, the whole stuff with Cameron going on with right. his dad, exactly. yeah. that is right. poignant. I mean, it's a, it's right. a, but I think it's a tradition of those, you know, those 1980s, those John Hughes movies. There is poignancy and there's real, like, pathos going on. Or ethos. I always mix up those two words, but there's real. I know what you meant. meant. As long as you don't say mostly or more unique, uh, we're going to be good. All right. We're We're good. good. Well, I, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. It sounds like we're going to have to have a follow up episode just dedicated to movies. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Oh, it was a pleasure. And you tell me when we'll do another one. No problem. Sounds great. Take care. Take care.